Welcome everyone. Good evening. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. Delighted to have you here this evening for this discussion with Carl Badenbacher, who is President of the EFTA Court, the Court of Justice of the European Free Trade Agreement, and has been that since 2003. That's right. And has been a judge on that court since 1995. And two weeks ago, he said he was stepping down as of March next year, and so is perhaps exceptionally free. Now, he's always been outspoken. Um, <laughs> exceptionally free to say what he thinks on a range of, of things. And I know we have here people who are very interested in the technical detail and people who are interested in some of the big tectonic plates that are shifting at the moment. Um, well, look, we're delighted to have you here this evening. Thank you very much indeed for coming. And you're going to begin with about 10 minutes of slides. And then I will ask him some questions. And then I know a lot of you have questions. So with that, welcome. Thank you very much. I have four points which I want to make. And since I'm restricted to 10 minutes, or I may take 12 or 13, I start, uh, I get into media's I call your in the zone of Immediately. First point, how could dispute resolution look like under a future deep and special partnership agreement <laughs> concluded by the UK and the European Union? A couple of models have been discussed, and I have listed them here. The first one is diplomacy. That's what has been the mechanism Switzerland has been relying on so far. Its network of bilateral agreements is mostly governed by diplomatic means. Diplomacy means that uh, there's no court. You have to agree. You only can take decisions by unanimity. Not very efficient, and in my view, not really a feasible solution. Second mechanism would be arbitration. <coughs> arbitration has been tried by Switzerland for decades. They always said to the European Union, we would like to have an arbitration tribunal. If you are in the single market, then arbitration cannot be used as far as substantive law is concerned, which is identical in substance to EU law. Third, the theoretical option, bilateral court, UK, EU. The Swiss tried this, didn't fly. The fourth one was also tried by Switzerland, a UK court above the Supreme Court. An additional UK pillar in Europe didn't fly, was formally rejected by the European Union in the case of Switzerland. And then number five would be the ECJ, without the British judge, according to what Her Majesty's government has been saying from the beginning, that's out of the question. And then the other issue is, uh, could it be feasible with a British judge for a transitional period? I want to postpone that uh, probably for discussion. Number six would then be the EFTA court. The EFTA court, in my view, would be a possibility. I'm not a politician. I cannot decide this. I'm just informing here. And in, in, in view of Britain's size, one could imagine one or two British judges. Now, everybody knows that one of the main reasons for Brexit was the unwillingness of Britain to continue free movement of persons. And if Britain were to join the EEA on the EFTA side, Freedom of the persons would be part of it. Slightly different than in the Union, but still. And that's why I want to point to a solution which has been proposed 
by the European Union to Switzerland in 2013. That's a so-called docking solution. That means that a non-EU country, in our case the United Kingdom, would not have to take the whole EA Aki, but could take part of it and could then use the institutions of the EFTA pillar, that means the EFTA surveillance authority and the EFTA court. And according to what was proposed to Switzerland at the time, uh, Switzerland could have then negotiated the right to nominate members of the EFTA surveillance authority and judges of the EFTA court. Importantly, under an EA solution, but also under the docking solution, the sovereignty with regard to common policies concerning foreign trade, agriculture, fisheries, foreign policy and currency would remain with Britain. My third point concerns the case law of the EFTA court. A lot of people have said in this country, well, if we want to leave the jurisdiction of the ECJ, why should we then go to the EFTA court? Because the EFTA court is only a vassal of the ECJ, and that's not true. Uh, the EFTA court has in the past 24 years been able to uphold EFTA values which differ significantly from what is usually uh, seen as EU values, for instance. The court has been rather strict at enforcing fundamental freedoms in the interest of businesses by using a strict proportionality test. Its case law concerning competition law, concerning uh, financial market law, concerning copyright law, concerning public procurement law, you have the names here of these cases, is marked by a market approach and a fundamental belief in competition. I also think it's fair to say, and you have three important cases here, that our image of man is similar to the man on the Clapham omnibus and not as close to the old German model of the elderly woman, you know, who needs utmost protection as probably is the case in the European Union. Our case law is marked by efficiency, also time-wise, and citizen friendliness. And when I speak about citizen friendliness, I want to mention our judicial style, which is quite different from the French style of the ECJ. We give more comprehensive reasons. We deal with arguments. We deal with pleas. And we try to be pragmatic and finally, I think that the fact that English is our working language is not without an impact on our judgments. The most important question is my last one. How independent is the EFTA court from the ECJ? There's this two-pillar system on the BEA agreement with an EU pillar and an EFTA pillar and two independent courts. And at the same time, there's a need for homogeneous development of the case law. Now, this appears to be almost like a square in the circle. But if we look at now reality, it has worked out very well.
I may also mention that there is a third player here, uh, which must be taken into account, that's the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, as we all know, the European Court of Human Rights is no more restricting itself to classical human rights, such as, you know, don't torture or don't, don't take away other people's life, but it's very much now interfering into economic law issues. Most important point here, no court can overrule the other court's judgments. DCJ cannot overrule our judgments. There are rules on a potential conflict between DCJ and us with regard to a certain legal question, but these written rules have been written in 1991 or 92, and they are not operational. They have never been used. Uh, there is, it is absolutely clear in the meantime that our judgments cannot be overruled by the Joint Committee, which is a, a diplomatic body. The former head of the legal service of the Council, Jean-Claude Piris, has asserted that in case of a conflict, the ECJ would prevail because the Joint Committee could then overrule a conflicting judgment of the EFTA court, but that is uh, absolutely out of the question that this is not so. Uh, the proof of this was the first ISAF case. When the EFTA Surveillance Authority lost its case, uh, the EFTA Surveillance Authority had the support of the Commission, of the UK government, of the Netherlands government. They lost the case and nothing happened. Uh, theoretically, in case of a conflict, uh, both sides, that means also EFTA could put the ECJ in charge to give an interpretation. This has never happened and it, it can basically not happen because EFTA would have to agree. And finally, the suspension of parts of the agreement and safeguard measures are not a solution. That means, and that's my last point now, the only sensible solution is judicial dialogue. Now, if you look at uh, recent academic literature, I've mentioned three important authors here, German judge Speitler, then Norwegian professor Graver, and Heidelberg, University of Heidelberg uh, scholar Müller Graf, they all say this homogeneity is a process-oriented concept which must be seen over time. And Mr. Ehlermann, the famous former WTO appellate body chairman, even said a certain amount of systemic competition between the ECJ and the EFTA court may be beneficial. And if we look at now what has happened in the last 24 years, we have seen that the EFTA court has sometimes given in, the ECJ has also quite frequently given in. The Advocate General may play an important role in this dialogue. And the most interesting consolation is the consolation which happened in a case decided exactly one month ago, the Fosen-Linien case, which was on the standard of liability uh, for a public authority which has awarded the contract to the wrong bidder. There we had a very, very interesting consolation. The ECJ was split. Two different chambers had given conflicting rulings. The Supreme Courts of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and, a bit surprisingly, the UK, said this is a case of state liability. That means the public authority is privileged. 
the Supreme Court of Liechtenstein, the Supreme Court of Iceland, uh, said no, these are normal tort rules. A simple breach of the public procurement provisions is enough, and we said a simple breach is enough. So the goal must be, and I have said that many, many, many years ago, and people are following me on this, a coercion-free discourse, as described by Jürgen Habermas. And in this course, in this discourse, it's not essential, you know, who prevails by way of bullying each other. It's the quality of the reasoning, as the legal director of the EFTA Surveillance Authority has written in a letter to the editor in Financial Times some two weeks ago, Mr. Tzatchler. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, well, thank you. Th th I'm not going to stop people applauding. Please do. No, please do. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, Professor Badenbach, you've taken us in at a marvellously technical level, which I want to quiz you on in a moment, and I know people do here. But let's just back, uh, back, back up. Um, there's, there's people here also starting from a more... Uh, a more general level, if you like. And what we're talking about here is how is the UK going to resolve disputes uh, with other EU countries after it's left the EU, given that this government has, uh, has, has said that it doesn't want to come under the European Court of Justice. That's a red line. And that's certainly the position of, of uh, many backbenchers in the Conservative Party. So what's it going to use in, instead? Uh, is it going to use the EFTA court, which is sitting there, ready to be used? Is it going to improvise something, as, as uh, Switzerland has done, which we'll come on to, as you said, diplomacy, a special agreement of just working way, its way through these things? And what we're talking here, the EFTA court, obviously, is, 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 dealt with, um, is dealing with Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, three countries that are within EFTA and within the EEA, not dealing with Switzerland, even though it's a member of EFTA, it's not a member of the EEA, uh, but it's sitting there as an alternative uh, to the ECJ. And so we're, we're, you know, what we're looking at is, you know, is this one of the uh, technical um, solutions to some of the predicaments that Britain faces in looking at just solving one of the problems of, of Brexit? And um, let me ask you straightforwardly, um, do you think the EFTA court would be a good solution for Britain? coming out, trying to do a special uh, deal with Europe and looking to that to resolve as a, as, a, as a court within which to resolve disputes? Before answering this question, I must make a statement. I'm only speaking in my own name here. I'm not speaking on behalf of the court. Mm. I don't have a mandate. I'm not speaking mm. on behalf of any EFTA government, but the answer is yes. Thank you. Um, thank you very much indeed. Uh, so let me follow that with, with saying, look, some people in Britain would say to you, really, despite your slides, which are very much go to this point, what is the difference between the ECJ and, and the EFTA court? You know, we've come out of, so say in Britain, out of the frying pan into the fire. We come out of this court, which we, if we don't like ECJ, really don't like very much. And we come under this one, which looks curiously similar. What, what do you say to that? They're only similar, but not the same. I mean, it's a much smaller court, mm. which means that individual judges have more influence mm. on the outcome of the cases. It is a court which is working in English. Mm. That's not unimportant because language is not a mere technicality. Language transports ideas. It is a court with a judicial style, a way of reasoning, which is 
rather close to common law courts mm. and rather far away from the decreeing method of French courts. Mm. And it is a, a court which is not going for uh, an ever closer union, not going mm. for political integration, but for economic integration, which has shown in the past in competition law, in um, intellectual property law, in financial market law, in consumer protection law, that it is mm. market-oriented. Mm. Uh, and I think that makes a difference. Now, those who have written, you know, it's always the same, you know, it's only a small cousin of the ECJ, and so I haven't seen that they have ever analyzed a single case of ours. Mm. Never, ever. Mm. This is superficial talk. Mm. And you had in, in your slides this interesting point that the, uh, the EFTA court's notion of the, the typical person was more like the man on the Clapham omnibus, not like the worried German woman. Just unpack that a bit for us. What does yes. that mean? Well, uh, the best thing is to give you one or two examples. Uh, the, the, uh, the best example is the inconsult case, which was referred to us by a court in Liechtenstein. An insurance company said, we will no more hand out uh, our contracts to our customers uh, as hard copies, but we will only have these contracts on our website. Each customer has a section there, and the customer can then do whatever he or she wants to do. You know, leave it there, or print, print it out, or download it on the own computer. Mm -hmm a so-called sophisticated website. And the question this Liechtenstein court asked us was, is this a durable medium within the definition of European law? There are many directives which operate with this notion of durable medium. And we said, it may be a durable medium if certain conditions are fulfilled. For instance, that the content of this insurance contract cannot be changed unilaterally, and that the contract remains there for as long as it takes after termination in order to fulfill guarantee claims. Mm. And so we, we were quite open-minded in, 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 the, in the time of internet. Interestingly, uh, the German government submitted observations in this case, the Czechish government and the Estonian government. And the Czechs and the Estonians said yes, this is modern development. Mm. We have to open up, you know, for internet business. Whereas the Germans said, this is devil's work, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the old German uh, view, or the image of man, quite clearly. Mm. So we went for the open-mindedness. The ECJ came up one year later in an Austrian case where they were very narrow-minded and said, the consumer cannot be expected, you know, to contribute in any way to the information being transported to him. The consumer must be delivered the whole information mm. by the service provider. That's a major difference in approach, mm. quite clearly. In the meantime, the ECJ has in a new case, the, that case was content services, in a new case, Baba now moved closer to us. But in, in all cases, they cited us, but I don't think in the first case they, they really followed us. Or I gave you another, Example, Swiss life and, and Vienna life, very interesting case. Uh, the question was whether so-called second-hand 
life insurance policies, uh, which are traded, obviously there's a markup for that, uh, whether the trade in second-hand life insurance policies is subject to the normal consumer protections of life insurance mm. law. Uh, people buy up to 500 of these second-hand life insurance policies. And the Commission and the EFTA Surveillance Authority argued in the case, this is a case of consumer protection. Consumer protection must apply, and they said, no, it's not. This, these are objects of speculation. This is pure speculation. This is this is a capital a capital market instrument. It has nothing to do with consumer protection. So that, this shows that we are quite aware of not overdoing it with protection of of people who do not deserve protection, mm. and thereby you know hindering business. No, these are very telling examples. All right, let me, let me press this a bit a bit further. Um, can you give us examples of where the EFTA court has actually contradicted? what the ECJ has, has concluded. Yes, for instance, in the first D.B. Schenker case, which was about access to documents which had been confiscated by a competition authority, and then the private plaintiffs may ask for access because they want to bring a damage action after the competition authority has probably imposed a fine. And there uh, we were much more outspoken than ECJ with regard to the role of a private plaintiff bringing a damage claim. You know, the, the Commission and the EFTA Surveillance Authority and also our sister court tend to say we must distinguish. You know, everything which is part of the public interest is for the Commission. And what private plaintiffs are doing is private interest. We said, no, a private plaintiff is on the face, only pursuing his private interest, but is benefiting the common good. That means, at the end of the day, the figure we used here is the private attorney general, in a similar way as in the United mm. States. I may quote here, for instance, uh, University of Berkeley professor Richard Buxbaum, who has written about this. It's, it's a totally different concept than what is usual on the European continent. All right, if I say to you, look, I buy this argument. Uh, some wouldn't, but if I say, look, I buy this argument that, um, well, uh, that, they, are, that they are different. People must not buy everything, yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. I want to hear counter-arguments. Yeah. All right, if I say, I accept this, that the EFTA has you know, examples of where it has been you know, entirely independent and has a different approach and so on. Um, what would you, uh, the three, Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, very different countries, have they all been equally happy with it? Well, I cannot say that. I mean, you have to ask them. Uh, I mean, Liechtenstein obviously is very happy, quite clearly, because uh, this EA agreement allowed them uh, to make a step out of the, as they used to call it, the rucksack of Switzerland. Uh, the Icelanders are very happy. Mm. I, I'm just back from a trip to Reykjavik where I met uh, the Prime Minister and the Foreign mm. Minister, and they are very happy. Mm. At one stage, they tried to join the European Union, but that was just a consequence of the downfall of their banks. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a, a step which had not really been prepared. And it was more or less clear to insiders from the beginning that this would not fly. Uh, Norway is in a more difficult situation. Uh, the Norwegian government has tried to convince uh, the, the people twice to join the European mm -hmm. Union, and uh, they have not succeeded. And so. 
uh, among Norwegian elites, there is a certain uh, yeah, unhappiness, you know, that they cannot sit at the big table with the other 28 and soon 27. And, and uh, as I often say, play with the, uh, play with the big, uh, boys and girls. But in the meantime, if you look at the polls in Norway, I mean, uh, I think almost 70% of the people are happy with this agreement. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and is, is your idea that if Britain uh, said, okay, we'll, we'll try and strike a deal with the EU and we'll, we'll try and uh, use the EFTA court as, as part of that, that there would be a British judge on that court? Whether, on the EFTA court, yeah. Whether, if, if, if Britain said, yes. okay, we, we will accept yes. the EFTA court. Well, that would be the idea. Them? Yeah, that would that be the would idea, be the idea to, to negotiate that. Yeah. Um, why do you think Britain has been so unhappy with the ECJ, or elements within Britain? Well, I cannot really tell, although I've been working close to the ECJ now for 22 years. But, I mean, there has always been this feeling among British people, and I know many of them, that... You know, the ECJ is a civil law court and it mm. has been set up very much in the French tradition after Second World War. You know, the Germans didn't have much to say immediately after the war, so it was the Conseil d'État which was the template for the ECJ. And mm. in fact, even today, if I compare now this judgment I refer to concerning public procurement, which we have given to the judgments of the ECJ, the style is Cartesian. You know, it's, it's, uh, they don't write a lot about what has been going on on their mind. And, and we are much closer to what is, is common in, in, in this country, I think. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's, it's all a bit that, you know. When, when I prepared now my speech for tonight, I looked up some old materials from the time of the EA negotiations. And uh, there was, for instance, the statement by high uh, EC, as they were called at the time, officials, we have to make sure that EC law is not going to be polluted by this EA agreement. I mean, huh? mm. that's quite heavy. Mm. That is all right. <laughs> that is quite heavy. But just to be clear, um, Britain is, you know, trying to mull over different options for its future relationship with the EU. As the world has observed, there isn't a lot of clarity about this at the moment. But is it, is it right that the, it, Britain could have an, an option not in the EEA, but still come under the EFTA court? Well, I, I cannot tell that. All I can say is that it has been proposed to Switzerland by the European Commission mm. in 2013. But nobody knows exactly how this would work, which is probably also a good thing, because you could negotiate. Mm. And the reason I'm pushing at this, obviously, is because Michel Barnier, at least, has said, look, Britain faces a binary option. You've got uh, something like the EEA, the Norway option, being very close to the uh, uh, EU, essentially part of the single market at one side, or you've got something like Canada at the other side, a, a really pretty ordinary uh, free trade agreement, maybe with a few bells and whistles on it. And Britain is, is pushing at the middle ground, saying, well, look, we like something special in the middle. So let me, let, let's jump to Switzerland. Um, you're Swiss, though it doesn't have to be directly relevant to your answer. And Switzerland, of course, is not under the EFTA court yes. and has this very special relationship yes. uh, with the EU and its own, as you said in the beginning, its own very special um, disputes resolution mechanism, which is diplomacy. Basically, they sit down and talk, but it's got rather stuck, hasn't it? Yeah. 
Uh, you, can you describe for us how it's, in case people here are not familiar yes. with this, how it's got stuck? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, yes, I'm a Swiss citizen, but I'm the, the judge of the Principality of Liechtenstein. Yeah. That means yeah. I'm a foreign judge. Yeah. And I've been a foreign judge for 22 years. That's quite beautiful. Uh, yeah, so, you know, in, in the case of Switzerland, things have developed or organically over decades. They started to conclude their first bilateral agreements decades ago, and then more and more came. And when they had rejected the EEA, they were able to conclude two whole packages and this and that, and it is basically always governed by a joint committee. And this joint a committee... joint committee of, of, of Swiss and the EU. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, th three EU diplomats, three Swiss diplomats sitting down, I don't know how often, once a year or twice a mm. year, and trying to sort out problems. However, uh, unanimity is required, so it's not a very flexible thing. Mm. And at one stage, uh, in 2008, the European Union told the Swiss this is no more a model for the future because mm. it doesn't give enough legal certainty and it lasts too long. We want you to acknowledge a court. Mm. And ever since, Switzerland tried you know, to have its court model. They then came up four years ago when the Union had proposed docking uh, I'm going to come on to docking in a moment. The yeah. then Swiss uh, foreign minister said, no, mm. we don't want uh, dock to the EFTA institutions. Uh, we will accept mm. the ECJ. Mm. However, we will recognize that ECJ gives binding rulings, but the rulings will not be final. Because once ECJ will have given an interpretation, uh, the the uh, conflict will go back to the joint committee and in the joint committee Switzerland will still have the possibility to say no and so the only question which at the end of the day is going to pose itself is the, uh, how big is the sanction going to be this is essentially what they tried yeah. now in the meantime uh, this foreign minister is no more in office mm. the secretary of state is no more in office and the new foreign minister has taken over, and I just read in the Sunday newspapers uh, in Switzerland that now the EFTA option is going to be assessed as well. Right. The docking well, option. The yeah, docking well, I'll come on to docking in a second. No, well, thank you for that. I mean, binding but not final. You could solve the Irish border problem with language like that. Um, so, so, I mean, this is very interesting territory, the Swiss example for, for Britain, obviously, because it's... Um, you know, it's what the British government feels might be a solution, sitting there in the middle, a very bespoke. But from what you're saying, actually, look, it really has got stuck. And uh, Switzerland's you know, looked at the ECJ, not so sure, now going to look at the EFTA thing. So it doesn't seem as if, uh, obviously you can't speak for the EU, but it doesn't sound as if that has enough possibility in it to solve no, some uh, of the British problems. No, I, I cannot speak for the EU, and, and I will not speak for the EU, but what I can say is that we have quite some experience with ECJ opinions concerning new judicial mechanisms. And the ECJ has been very strict. If you remember, in 1991, on the 14th of December, the ECJ killed this combined EEA court. Later, it killed a patent court. And then we had the last opinion so far concerning the, uh, you know, 
cooperation, so to speak, between the ECJ and the Court of yeah. Human Rights. So the ECJ is very, very strict when it comes to that. And, and uh, whether the ECJ would now appreciate to be assigned a half political role in a model in which it could rule with binding force, but not final force, mm. I don't know. Mm. Let's come on to this question of docking. What this means, if I, if I understand you rightly, is that the, um, if the UK docked with the, uh, the EFTA institutions, that's the court we're talking about, and also the surveillance authority, um, that it would, um, it, would, it would not have to be a member of the EEA, and it would, um, it would mean that the EFTA court interpreted uh, EEA laws for Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, and a different set of laws for, for the UK. Is that, is that what would happen? It's a way of edging up to the court without actually being part of the EEA. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I have not invented this docking solution. Hmm. I just read about it, and uh, we discussed it uh, in the EFTA court, and there was a time when Swiss politicians and, and Swiss diplomats visited mm. the EFTA court mm. in order to discuss mm. this. That was before 2013, mm. 2012. Mm. The idea had already been around. And uh, this argument was put forward. Yes, how on earth could then the EFTA court, you know, in a different composition on the one hand, give interpretation to EEA law mm. for the three, and on the other hand, give interpretation to the bilateral agreements, Switzerland, EU, uh, on the other mm. hand, and then, you know, these, these ivory tower lawyers even said, well, you know, these bilateral agreements are classical public international law, whereas EA law is uh, sui generis international law and the like. I think at the end of the day, I mean, uh, one would have to be pragmatic in such a situation. Mm. The law would be largely identical in substance anyway, mm. whether bilateral or multilateral, uh, but I cannot really tell now how this would have to be handled. You know, also, uh, I mean, uh, whether Britain could have two judges, even given its size, hmm. or uh, whether, uh, you know, how much judicial personnel could be sent from the hmm. two docking countries because one thing must not be overlooked, you know, it's not only judges who are involved in, 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 uh, in judging, but also legal secretaries. Mm. If you look at the situation at ECJ, legal secretaries are sometimes 50 years old and, and hold professorships and still do this job. And, uh, so, I mean, these are all open questions. Mm. There, there, there's, yeah. You know, there is a non-paper. I think there's a gentleman from the Swiss Embassy. He can uh, probably tell us about this non-paper. It's still secret. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not supposed to have seen it, but uh, I think there this model is mentioned. That he probably knows more about it than I do, or at least he can tell more than I. Um, yeah, that's an open invitation to speak. We always enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> or come back to that. But you know, listening to you, Professor, I, I wonder why countries um, which come under the EFTA court at the moment want Britain involved, might want Britain involved at all. You know, um, you know, they've got it working very nicely at the moment for the, 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 their point of view, and suddenly Britain, much bigger country, come in, might want two judges, all this kind of thing. Is it really in their, in their interest? I don't know. Uh, this is for the governments to answer quite clearly. We have seen what the governments have stated so far, 
uh, I think at the end of the day, the Icelandic foreign minister is very much in favour mm. of this. Uh, other governments are more reluctant, but they have all signalled after a while that if Britain would want this, they would be open-minded. Why are you stepping down? Why? Mm. Because I want to do something else. On that note, let's, let's have some questions. Can be Swiss or otherwise. Here in the front. Uh, excuse me, could you wait for the microphone and also, if you'd like, say who you are. Uh, Dr. Wilczek, um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a scientist diplomat. But uh, if European Union would be a good thing, so if you would like to go to Europe, so you should be e also possible to go out very easy. And it looks like a very tricky dictatorship. And when I have seen uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs in Washington, it was International Institute of Strategic Study, he was criticizing Poland, United States. And then I start to say that recently Angela Merkel came to Poland and told Germany, I unify, thank you. So that's why it was unif unification of Europe. Very tricky. And why Switzerland doesn't belong to? Thank you very much. Would you like to say where, where you're a diplomat for? Would you say? Uh, I'm educated as a diplomat. I'm oh, educated as a diplomat. Thank you very much. But I yes, oh, yeah, okay. Fine. I got that. Okay, yeah. uh, I mean, the first part was a statement. I want to comment on this. Yeah. Uh, as regards your question, why is Switzerland not part of it? Uh, Switzerland would probably have become part of the European economic community had it been invaded during the Second World War. Then they may have drawn the same conclusion as the Luxembourgers, for instance, or the Dutch or the Belgians. But fortunately, they were not invaded, and then they were pushed into this special role after the Second World War. And then once you are in, you know, it's very, very difficult. And given the political structures of Switzerland with the direct democracy, it's not easy to become part of a European Union in which legislation is made in a different way than in a direct democracy. Thank you. Next question. Uh, where should we go? Uh, here, please. I don't know if that was me or not, but Tim. So, sorry, <coughs> sorry. Who's, um, who's got the microphone? Thank you. Um, Kevin Hollingrake, Member of Parliament for Thirsk and Malton, which is in North Yorkshire. Um, one qu quick question. In terms of the me mechanisms for dispute resolution you said on your first chart, um, the CETA deal, the Canadian trade deal, has an investment court system. Where does that fit into in your, in your different categories? And the other question is, in a, in a speech, I think, um, last year you talked about EFTA having core determination in terms of EU regulations but not core decision making but you felt if Britain negotiated its way into EFTA and EEA maybe it could get core decision making. How realistic is that? Thank you very much for, the, for those questions and that, the, the first one with I mean, a special force behind it of you know, if Britain ends up with a, a Canadian type deal yes. or like the CETA you know, um, where, you know, where does that fit, you know, what kind of dispute resolution might apply yes. then? Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for these two questions. Well, concerning the, the foreseen or planned seat arbitration, yes, that is something between traditional arbitration and the court. But first of all, I mean, this is not tried and tested at all. Uh, 
and it has been developed in the context of investment protection. So I don't think that if you want to go for a deep and special partnership agreement, this would be good enough. Yeah. I mean, it's probably fair to say that the deeper this partnership agreement uh, it's, it's supposed to be, the more you will have to accept a real permanent court of law. Yeah. And as regards now co-determination or co-decision rights, that's not really my field. I have just seen what's going on in Brussels in that regard. Uh, when the whole EA process started in the late 1980s, then Commission President Jacques Delors made an offer to the EFTA states of common decision-making procedures or bodies. And when then the EFTA states, you know, were not unanimous, and Sweden and Austria and Finland and Norway said, for us, this is a transitional thing anyway. We are not interested in fighting for this. The Swiss were left on their own in, 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 this, uh, in this question. And at the end, uh, no co-decision uh, was possible. Co-determination is possible. And I have seen that, for instance, the conservative Norwegian government has installed four years ago an own ministry for Europe. And in their reports, they write that they have uh, significantly increased their influence on uh, European legislation, not least because you know, the decisive phase is often the expert phase. Uh, having said this, uh, you know, for Britain this would probably not be an easy thing. However, two things must be borne in mind. Uh, one is that a lot of regulation in Europe is based on global uh, premises. That's one thing. And the other one is that in this Breuchel paper, you know, important people like uh, Mr. Uh, pisani Ferri the economic advisor of President Macron and the president of the uh, Foreign Committee of the German Bundestag and a couple of others yeah. are talking about, you know, giving Britain at least a political right uh, to be present in uh, legislation. And uh, that's all yeah. I can say as a judge. No, thank you very much. Okay, here, here in the blue cardigan, and then I'll come to the doorway. There's another seat here if someone wants Juliet Samuel from The Telegraph, um, and I have a related question, which is that there is, uh, or there has been talk, you mentioned the Bruegel paper, but there's been talk generally of the emergence at some point of a two-sphere Europe with a Eurozone in the middle and uh, states around that do not want to join the Euro and don't want political union. Um, I know it's not directly in your remit as a judge, but as someone who's observed uh, these institutions for a long time, um, do you think if the UK were to, to join the EFTA court in some way that this could be a sort of precursor to the emergence of that two-sphere Europe or something along those lines? Well, uh, first of all, you know, I was ha very happy to see my piece published in the Telegraph this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and, and secondly, uh, probably yes. You know, uh, the whole thing started in the late 50s and early 60s with the 
with the inner six and the outer seven. And uh, in a way, you know, the outer seven still have this way of thinking. If the Danes are critical members of the European Union, the Swedes have a certain distance. Uh, these are free trade oriented countries and uh, it could be, but it's a political question. It's just that uh, as an innocent bystander, I have seen these developments. Thank you. In the doorway. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Matthew Holhouse from MLEX, the, the Legal Newswire. Um, I had a question about how, how the, the work of the court is going to change after Brexit, leaving aside the, the scenario that, that the UK could accede to the EFTA court. If, if you just have, a let's say, a, a straightforward FTA. Do you anticipate somehow that process generating different kinds of cases that are going to come before your court or, or different perspective on those cases? And secondly, you, you talked earlier about the, this, uh, this dialogue that you have with the ECJ, ECJ to EFTA. If you have a, a third player in that, uh, a sort of a UK-EU court, are you going to have some sort of triangular relationship or does that hold any sort of worries for you or opportunities for you or, or, or how does that change, change the way you might operate in the yes. future? Okay, thank you. Uh, well, as regards the work of the EFTA court, uh, if Britain is no more in the European Union, it could well be that the law in action in the European Union will change to a certain extent. For instance, in competition law, uh, then French President Hollande said three days after the Brexit referendum, now the time has come to adjust European competition law and to go more for employment and growth and, and uh, other non-competition goals. So that could have an impact. Uh, actually, I warned the ministers of EFTA four days after the Brexit vote of this that under the homogeneity rules, if the law in action would change in the European Union, and become more mercantilist and less competition-oriented or less market-oriented, this could cause problems for the EFTA states because the court is bound by homogeneity. So this is one point. Uh, the other point is that uh, what should happen if there would be a third court, uh, an EU-UK court? I don't believe that a EU-UK court has a chance to fly. I don't believe that. A bilateral court, the Swiss wanted to, to have a bilateral court. There was no chance. I remember that Russia under Yeltsin was discussing a bilateral court, uh, Russia, European Union. Difficult to imagine a bilateral court because such a court would at the end of be above the ECJ and bind the ECJ and the ECJ will probably not find that this is compatible with its own autonomy. Mm. Thank you for that. It was over here by the fireplace. Thanks. Andrea Westall, um, Open University and Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development. Um, it's a question just about um, EFTA's values, and you were just talking about that in the last question. So. If one of the approaches is a market approach to decision-making, one of the key areas that people have been talking about is what's going to happen to public procurement decisions, um, although it's unclear exactly what will happen going forward. But 
one of the main issues in the UK is around sort of local employment preferment, and that's come through because of concerns about local employment in certain areas. Um, with current EU procurement legislation, that's not possible. So I'm just wondering whether or not, if things change going forward, whether or not EFTA values actually bring that back in as a requirement that you then have to have full and open uh, procurement. It's just that it's kind of one of those things under discussion at the moment, and it might be the EFTA values actually um, make a requirement, let's say, over a certain way of doing yeah. things. Well, there's not that much case law on public procurement by my court that I could answer this question. Uh, I mentioned this Fosen-Linian case in which we opted for a market-oriented solution by holding that an authority cannot get away you know, with a mistake easily. They have to be liable like any other operator in uh, business is liable because such an authority does not act, you know, juris uh, gestionis, but just as a commercial operator. But that doesn't exclude that you take into account other non-competitive goals in public procurement, such as, you know, hiring minorities or hiring disadvantaged people and the like. That, that isn't excluded by this. But uh, otherwise, I, I'm afraid I cannot say more on this. Thank you. Let's go here in the pink scarf. Yvonne Stahalsi uh, from Wirtschaftswoche, German Business Week. Um, the docking solution seems attractive, but I'm not quite sure I understand what the implications would be. Who would decide if uh, docking is possible for the UK and also, uh, with regards to citizens' rights, the EU wants the ECJ to have a, a, a role in the future. So would the EU not have to accept the EFTA court then as the major authority, and is it likely to do that? Well, as I said before, this docking solution has not been really worked out. It, it is in this non-paper. Uh, and I think the idea would be that everybody has to agree to it, the European Union on the one hand, and then the, the current EFTA states as well, with the exception of Switzerland, because Switzerland is not part of the EA. Uh, in the Sunday newspapers in Switzerland now, this week, there was a report which claimed that EU diplomats had said that if Switzerland now wanted to examine docking, they were open-minded. That's all I, I know about it. But uh, I cannot predict uh, how they would react to it. Now, the ECJ, as a solution for the future, uh, I think that my esteemed colleague on the ECJ, Kuhn Lenartz, the president, has said in a TV interview in July and on, on Flemish TV that he thinks that docking to the EFTA court would be an ideal solution. And this has worked very well without the slightest problem. Thank you. Over here by the door. President Baudenbacher, thank you so much for that. Um, one aspect Excuse of this... Me, would you like to say who you are? I'm please? sorry, I'm Peter Freeman. I'm a, I'm a competition judge at the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Um, one aspect of this topic which is often overlooked is timing. Uh, we tend to talk about these alternative 
structures, institutions, as if we're looking at a menu in a restaurant and we can choose one or the other. Surely the attraction, would you not agree, of the, of the uh, EFTA court, EFTA itself, and indeed the EEA, is that it's there. And while we might have to make some adjustments, we do not have to start from scratch. It seems to me that both the Canadian and the Swiss experience suggest that whatever institution you end up with, it takes an awful long time to negotiate. And I ask, what are we doing in the meantime? Because the clock is ticking. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> yes, I, I concur with this statement. I concur. I mean, this, this structure is there. It has worked well. Imagine how well it has worked if you look at the big European Union and these three small countries. And still, there was no bullying involved on the judicial level, not at all. I mean, uh, I also have statistics which were not shown now, which make it clear that our influence on the ECJ is overproportionate in many, many cases. Among judges on the European level, it, it, it's not fist fighting, you know, it's, it's argument, it's, it's, it's quality, it's exactly what the legal director of the ESA Surveillance Authority has written in the Financial Times 10 days ago. As you said, the EFTA court is there, it's not on paper, uh, it's, it's, up, it's up and running and so on. Um, I, I was coming back to this, this question of, um, it's not quite motivation, but I mean, it, it, whether, they, whether uh, you know, Britain's in, extending the EFTA court to Britain would complicate the way it's running. I mean, you're making a very, very good pitch for extension of the EFTA court to Britain. And you say, look, we're here. Uh, even if you're stepping down, uh, we're here, we're up and running, we're not on paper, or it's not like all these theoretical things. Um, um, some people might jive uh, and say, look, there's a power grab by the EFTA court um, uh, for extension of its territory. But what's in it for the court to, to do Well, this? you know, I'm, as, I, as I said, I have declared my mm -hmm. resignation from, mm. from the judgeship. I, that was always a cheap way of attacking me. Mm. When I, when I uh, proposed this in Switzerland, mm. you know, they would attack me and say, mm. he only wants to increase yeah. his power. Okay, but I'm uh, offering you a chance to rebut this. Yes, this and, and now rebut. here I'm stepping down, so mm. it's not about me. I just think mm. that the structure makes sense mm. Mm. and mm. that there is this wish in, the, in those countries who believe in free trade mm. not to move on with integ political integration. At the same time, those who want to move on feel mm. that they cannot move on. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think it would be a good solution. Yeah. Last, we're coming to the last questions. Okay, uh, how many have we got? One, two. Okay, let's take them to together, uh, both of these, uh, here on the aisle and then here in the front. Um, Patricia Hamzayan, independent, a responsible investment specialist. Um, Robert Peston has just um, said after his interview with you that he believes you could solve the Irish border dispute, or EFTA me, could, me. EFTA could. Could you give us an idea of how you might, how EFTA might go about that? Let's take them one by one, in fact. No, <laughs> no okay. This is a misunderstanding. I, I haven't said that EFTA could resolve this. Once I'm out of office, uh, if you make me a sole arbitrator, then uh, <laughs> I may come up with a proposal. 
Right, if you want to give us an advanced preview, I think Mary Barbara Peston's interview is running later tonight. Anything you might have said that corresponds with that? Uh, what I said was uh, in this TV interview that if Britain were to be part of the EEA on the EFTA side, then the situation at the Irish border would be comparable to the situation at the border between Sweden and Norway. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. All right, so end of, um, so, 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 on my side at least, a slight sense of deflation because uh, obviously if Britain were part, remained, or were part of the EEA, many problems indeed might be solved. Um, but uh, so far that is not on the table from the British side. Last question, thank you. Hi, uh, Paris Rimenbakis, uh, EU exit policy from Department of Work and Pensions. Uh, you spoke about the uh, sort of docking solution and that it's not been fully worked out yet. Um, and to me, it sounds like you're suggesting that should the UK go or opt for such an option, they'd be able to create a bespoke, tailored deal for themselves. Um, but there's been a lot of political uh, talk against that, actually, saying that the UK basically, I suppose, can't have its cake and eat it, create its own situation. Don't you perceive there being a uh, general, I don't know, uh, feeling against the UK going for such a bespoke option? Thank you. Well, I mean... That's difficult to predict. You know, Switzerland has tried to get the bespoke uh, option for decades, and they were successful because they went step, small step by small step. But since 2008, we know that the union doesn't really appreciate that anymore, and the union has refused to conclude any new market access agreement since 2008 with Switzerland. And at a certain time, one year ago or so, they even uh, blocked the updating of existing bilateral agreements in order to show the Swiss, you know, that they were quite vulnerable with regard to access to the single market. So, uh, okay, you could always say the UK is much bigger, but uh, if the union wants to stick to its claim that is a community of law, it will have to give more or less the same treatment to everybody. Thank you. That's a great point on which uh, to end, and we're sadly going to have to end. Uh, but you've taken us right to this uh, tantalizing, or tantalizing to Britain, a ground of the middle ground, uh, what bespoke options might be there, despite uh, Michel Barnier's insistence that it is a binary choice between Norway and, and, and Canada. And in fact, the IFG Brexit team is about very soon to bring out a paper on that middle ground, what the precedence uh, might be there and what Britain might negotiate or might aim to negotiate in that, in that space. Though, as Peter just said, uh, actually one of the key issues is time. Um, like a fascinating discussion. Uh, we've taken us right to the heart of, I mean, it's not just a technical point, it's one of the institutions that will have to be either created or you know, adopted um, if Britain is to achieve this in the time. For those of you who've also been here early in the day, we also had the Irish ambassador to the UK, Adrian O'Neill, and so we've gone in one day um, from some of the raw political passions and obstacles uh, of this whole process to some of the uh, absolutely essential um, technical uh, institutions and processes. Uh, uh, Professor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you all for your questions.